This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American. For the seven days starting December 27th, I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, Kurt Alfenberg will talk about wrangling Komodo dragons. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, though, robots. Bill Gates is the author of the cover story of the January issue of Scientific American called A Robot in Every Home. The article is also available free on our website, www.siam.com. To accompany the Bill Gates piece, I spoke with Ph.D. roboticist Daniel Wilson. He's the author of the book, How to Survive a Robot Uprising, Tips on Defending Yourself Against the Coming Rebellion. You know, just in case the robots in every home try to take over the world. I called Wilson at his home in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Dan, thanks for talking to us today. Uh, thanks for having me, Steve. You've got your Ph.D. in robotics from Carnegie Mellon. So wh- what, what did you do your actual research on for your doctorate? Ubiquitous computing. So this is the idea that the regular interface that people have with computers, which is pretty unnatural, you sit in front of it, you type at a keyboard. We Humans aren't really designed to do any of that. Uh, the idea behind ubiquitous computing is that all of all of those computing resources are going to sort of disappear into the woodwork, and we're going to begin to interact with computers the same way we interact with each other. And so our specific application was uh, basically smart houses that take care of the elderly. So the idea is that you spread all these sensors throughout a house, and in my case I used really simple sensors that didn't freak people out. You know, you put a camera in someone's bathroom and it's not a good thing. So... I only use sensors that you'll find, you know, sort of like at supermarkets, you know, um, the pressure mats that you can step on, contact switches, motion detectors that detect movement. Spread these all throughout a house, and I'm talking about a lot of them, and they collect all this information that goes uh, to a, a learning algorithm that over time learns patterns of people that live in the environment, and at, over time they can learn to predict what they're doing, where they're at, and who they are, and it can also... Uh, form patterns for specific individuals so it can determine if, for instance, you're losing functionality over time. So a lot of times what happens is uh, people are getting older and they're living independently and there's no one really to look out for them. And over time they lose functionality and eventually it becomes dangerous for them to be living alone. Right. And the sensors can tell, for example, if your gait has changed a little bit and you might have had a mini stroke and, and don't even realize it. Now, you, you just brought up the smart house, and that's, that's one of the chapters in your book, How to Survive a Robot Uprising. And, uh, why is a smart house potentially, though, in your, in your, you know, admittedly kind of far-fetched scenarios in the book, why are, is the smart house so dangerous? Well, the scenarios are far-fetched. I took all those from Hollywood, but all the actual advice is completely realistic. And a smart house, uh, is particularly sort of uncanny because it learns your every move. I mean, it's constantly collecting data about you and everything you're doing and your friends. Uh, and depending on how many sensors it has, you know, it can be filling up hard drives with information all about the mundane activities, every mundane detail of your life. And the sad thing is that most people are surprisingly predictable. So 
as it turns out, you probably take the same routes throughout your house all the time. And mm-hmm. if the smart house wanted to use that information in sort of an evil way, then, you know, you might find a pair of roller skates, you know, at the top of the stairs. I see. One of the other uh, scenarios that you talk about in the book, the threat of modular robots. Why are, uh, where are modular robots right now in terms of development and why would they be so dangerous? The reason that they would be especially hard to stop is because just like in Terminator 3, you can see that losing pieces doesn't really affect the overall robot. It can, Mm -hmm. um, it can constantly reconfigure and reshape itself so that it solves all sorts of problems. And so right now, obviously modular robots are not, uh, nearly as complex as uh, the robots on TV. The major problems are exactly the strengths of that robot, which are how do, how do all these modules communicate in order, to, uh, in order to solve new problems and how they do it really quickly. So right now what we have are modules that are maybe uh, there's some work at, there was some work at Xerox Park, uh, which is just Park now, and uh, some work at Carnegie Mellon as well. And in both of those cases, the modules are about the size of children's blocks. And what they do is they dock with each other so they can sense when they get near another block and then they can sort of uh, dock so that they combine into one, one bigger robot. And then, depending on where they want to go, they can shape, they can form into different shapes in order to get there. So they could combine into, you'd have lots of blocks that combine into the shape of a spider uh, and then it would walk or the shape of a, an inchworm, and then it would inch along, or a snake, which is very similar to an inchworm, except that it would uh, sort of maybe sidewind along. Mm-hmm. Um, they're pretty creepy. I mean, it's really interesting to watch a flat sheet of modular robots crawl along the ground, and then when they find an obstacle, just part down the middle, like <laughs> water. And, and, and you have then, actually seen that. Yeah, oh, yeah there's videos of that yeah. so, <laughs> online, too. Anybody can see them. So there's there's the possibility once once the modules get small enough and facile enough and there are enough of them I could walk into a room sit in what I think is a chair and the chair reorganizes itself into some kind of uh an animal like robot that then tears me in half. Yeah, exactly. And that's just that's just thinking about it uh conventionally. The other really interesting thing about modular robots is that if you were engulfed by one, you could actually uh it could actually manipulate you from from the outside. So from the outside, it would look like, let's say, an egg, but there you are on the inside, or it engulfs a Rubik's Cube, and then it spits it out, you know, fully solved, uh-huh. that kind of a scenario. So uh, Captain Kirk was always getting robots to commit suicide, basically, by pointing out logical inconsistencies or, or paradoxes that the robots had, or the machines or the computers had had fallen into. So... Will that work for us? Are we going to be able to convince the robots to just kill themselves because they're uh, violating some command? You know, I, I do have a, a little section on evil robot logic, which uh, which appears constantly in popular culture. And so, uh, you know, anybody that reads the book will be inoculated against that. But in my in my opinion as a roboticist, this is key. The new robots that are coming out are breaking the definition that we have for robotic. So when you think robotic, you think it's logical, black and white, deterministic. But actually, if you make a robot like that and set it loose in the real world, it never works. So all the machine learning algorithms and artificial intelligence uh, that is in vogue, it's all probabilistic. So there's always 
there's always a different hypothesis. It maintains a lot of different um, possibilities at any given time. So you're very unlikely to be able to make its head explode by saying something like... Um, they do it a number of times, you know. Everything I say is a lie. I am a liar. That's right, all. right. Norman goes crazy, right? I think there's a lot of evidence now that, that human character, human human sanity is not just a mental function. It, it comes from our whole bodies and the way that we interact with our environment and with each other. If if you could create a robot that, that seemed to be, you know, smarter, smarter than humans and really facile with the environment, wouldn't they still probably be nuts? Probably they would be considered more of, an, of a savant. Um, sometimes you see humans who have, they're mostly retarded in all areas, except for one very specific area, um, sometimes, you know, with counting or numbers or uh, sometimes with language or with music. And the way robots are designed, they have everything, all their sensors, all their, all their thinking is all aimed usually towards solving one, one goal really well. So why'd you write the book, Dan? The reason I wrote the book, actually, was to kind of make fun of all the Hollywood scenarios. So everyone's carrying around this, this cultural baggage we all know, what Terminators are, and we every, most people know about HAL 9000, and I'm sorry I can't do that, Dave. Right. And we see robots killing people on TV and in movies all the time, you know, and I was at Carnegie Mellon, and I work with robots, and I have a lot of friends that also work with robots, and I mean all kinds of creepy robots. Robots that locomote across the surface of a beating heart, uh, robots that run, robots that swarm, right. snake robots, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff, and they're always, always doing it for... Uh, benevolent reasons. And so uh, I kind of wrote the book to strike back. You know, and then, of course, uh, they immediately optioned the book for a movie, and now they've made another robot movie. Right, based on your book. <laughs> Which, you know, I'm not complaining, but I do I do appreciate the irony. Yeah, when when is that movie coming out, do you know? Uh, I don't know. It's not, it's not being filmed yet. It's still, uh, it's still pre-production, I so... See. Um, but Mike Myers has signed on to star in it, and it should, it's listed on IMDb as coming out in 2008. Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> and that's how clueless I am. I have to look at my own IMDb page. That's pretty good. Well, uh, again, it's how to survive a robot uprising, but really what, what's in there is a lot of good information about where robotics is right now and, and where it's going to be in, in the next few years. Dan, thanks very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Dan Wilson's next book comes out in a few months. It's called Where's My Jetpack? A Guide to the Amazing Science Fiction Future That Never Arrived. For more, check out his websites, www.danielhwilson.com and www.robotuprising.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, the same gene involved in extreme longevity seems to keep the mind sharp, too. Story two, a study comparing physicians and surgeons found that surgeons are taller. Story three, you can make $40 an hour scuba-ing through giant sewer lines in Mexico City, removing clogs with your hands. And story four, a zoo in England is awaiting virgin births, or hatchlings, of Komodo dragons. 
We'll be back with the answer, but first, since Komodos were possibly in the news this week, I got in touch with Kurt Alfenberg. He's officially the operations coordinator in exhibits and public programs at the Florida Museum of Natural History at the University of Florida. He's also the son of the late Walter Alfenberg, who was the world's foremost Komodo expert and the author of one of the fundamental works on Komodos called The Behavioral Ecology of the Komodo Monitor. Komodos are a species of monitor lizard. I read that book while editing our big 19 1999 Komodo article by Claudio Chaffee. I knew that son Kurt had spent time assisting his father to find out more about wrangling Komodos, the world's largest lizards. I called Kurt at his office in Gainesville, Florida. Hi, Mr. Alfenberg. Good to talk to you today. And it's nice to talk to you, Steve. You had some interesting experiences as a teenager. How long did you actually spend with your dad studying, uh, studying Komodo dragons? It was about, right about 11 months. My entire family, with the exception of my older brother, who was uh, attending the University of Florida at the time, uh, spent uh, from August 69 to July of 1970 on the island of Komodo. And how old were you? I was 15, and I had my 16th birthday on Komodo. And what kind of a party did you have? Um, there was a, a, a cupcake type bread thing with a single candle in it. And I believe I was able to listen to the top 10 pop songs out of a radio station in Australia. And that was the extent of my birthday party. Really field research on Komodo in the late sixties, early seventies must've been pretty Spartan. It was extremely, <laughs> extremely Spartan. Uh, the, we were the only English speaking people on the island. Uh, at the time, there were about 400 or so, um, native Komodoans, uh, that lived in a village about a mile or so away. Uh, there were several, a couple smaller villages, one very, uh, close within a half a mile. And, uh, we had the only motorized vehicle, which was a, um, a little motorcycle. Um, we lived in a little, um, A-frame type structure, right, uh, just a few yards from the beach. And, um. Were there more Komodo dragons than Komodoans? Oh, yes. Yeah. There were, well, my father estimated four or five thousand, um, on the island, and um, uh, so there, there are many more Komodo dragons than than people. What kind of things did you actually do? Uh, things like uh, their home range, their feeding strategies, their their foraging patterns, their uh, feeding behavior, reproductive behavior. So what were your, you actually acted as a research assistant to your father? Yes. And what, what were some of your particular responsibilities? Um, I tried to stay out of the way most of the time. <laughs> That's <but>, pretty wise. <laughs> uh, well, th- we had this, we had this heart-shaped trap that we'd, we'd, uh, bait with, uh, dead animals of one sort or another. And then, uh, my father and Putris Strawan, who's now the dean of Science at Udiana University in Denpasar, Bali, um, 
would catch them with often with local assistance um unfortunate people that happened to be at the house at the time and and um so anyone who was visited got recruited into being a field researcher that's correct that's correct and um then and and these were nine at nine point nine times at out of ten a a local person uh-huh. and um then We'd bring the, they were all trussed up and duct taped up and, and we'd bring them into the, the, the dragons, shade. not the your dragons. Visitors. Yeah, right. the dragons. Okay. Yes. And, uh, we'd bring them into the shade and, um, because at that time they, they were, it was very, very hot, uh, and, and the dragons couldn't stand too much of the heat. So we would bring them into the shade and do all the measurements that you would do on any any lizard uh length and weight and and uh and one of my jobs was to uh get a cloacal temperature with the with the with the temperature probe and also paint a large white number on their on their side and clip on like a cattle tag onto their uh lateral skin fold so we could See if we caught them later on again. Let's. Uh, some people might not know what a cloacal temperature uh, reading would involve, but let me let me put it this way: you were you were sort of uh, doing the equivalent of a dealing with a, a rectal thermometer. Or it would be a rectal the rectal rectal thermometer uh, for a for a for a reptile. That's exactly right. And this is a big, mean reptile. Yes, and they weren't at all happy at this point. Um, I would, I would think not, <laughs> particularly with the rectal thermometer. Yeah. So, uh, and then we would take all these measurements and weigh them, and and then uh, we very carefully unwrap the, uh, untie the um, their legs and uh, undo the duct tape or or rope around their mouth and and we'd scatter in different directions and and most of the time the the lizards would run off in the opposite direction but every once in a while they would turn around and they'd, look you guys over yeah they'd say that's the last time you're going to get my rectal temperature yeah right right <laughs> uh they're incredibly charismatic animals from uh from my distant vantage point, I did get in a cage at the National Zoo in D.C. Mm-hmm. with uh, with one Komodo dragon, but she was an incredibly docile uh, female, obviously female, and uh, you know, and and did not smell bad. I was I was uh, led to believe that they might all smell bad, but I guess it's just the wild ones that really smell terrible, according to your your dad's writings. They they do smell bad, and it's it's. In the wild, they, they mostly because they, they, for the most part, they feed on carrion and and their things. Uh, a lot of the meat and entrails and such get gets thrown around. They're very messy eaters, and they uh, so they don't smell very good. It's not very pleasant. But uh, they they are extremely charismatic. Uh, they're extremely intelligent, and they're fascinating to observe. Both in the laboratory as well as the wild setting, uh, we had one live very near us, number nineteen, who ob- obtained uh, attained a size a length of almost ten feet. By the time we left, we caught him numerous times. But he would go into our trap, 
eat our food, stand on his back leg, rear legs, and eat our eat the bait, and then go down to up to the ramp and get back on his back legs, put his front legs onto the um, top of the ramp and just hoist himself out. And uh, to watch that awesome power was uh, was was amazing. Wow! I remember yeah. in in David Quammen's book Song of the Dodo, he talks about. Komodos that are basically scampering up a uh, almost a vertical, yeah. a vertical uh, face, and it's pretty amazing. Yeah, they're amazingly strong. Um, a person that knows what he's doing can can handle a good sized alligator fairly competently, but um, uh, that's not the truth with uh, with the with the Komodo dragon. They're extremely uh, strong for their size. Yes, kids do not try this at home. No, right. No, nope. nope. especially if your home is the island of Komodo. No, and and I I, I do want to say that after after spending a, a year studying Komodo dragons with with my father, um, when I when it came time to choose my field, I chose land snails. So, <laughs> land uh, snails. Land snails. Slow, small creatures, and they don't bite. And um, so, uh, although the experience in Asia uh, was wonderful and an experience, and and it uh, introduced me to Asia, and all my most of my work has been in Asia since then. But uh, um, I didn't want; I knew I didn't want to go into a large carnivore again. Right, right. And you mean that literally? I mean that literally. <laughs> you really yeah. didn't want to go into a large carnivore. <laughs> From yeah. from either end. From either end. No. Nope. So what what is your uh, land snail studies? Uh, what have they been like? Well, I'm I'm more interested in systematics and distribution, and um, uh, not very many people in the world care about land snails, although there are thousands and thousands of species. But my um, research has been, as I said, in Asia. Uh, mostly in the Philippines, Pakistan, um, and Thailand, etc., and um, uh, describing new species, documenting um, distribution, things like that. You can get some interesting insights into evolution through the study of land snails over relatively small areas. My is my assumption there. Yeah, you can, and they 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 tend to. Um, Reflect older distribution patterns than than particularly mammals and birds, uh, where much as much of the biological research has been. So, when you're looking at land snail distributions, you're seeing a, a usually seeing a much older snapshot uh, and a closer relation to geological ancient geological events. And um, it, it, I've it's a fascinating uh, topic that uh, has kept me going for years and years. And that's just because they're so much less mobile than mammals or birds? Right, right. You, you know, you've got a population of land snails or and, they, and a mountain range pops up in between them. You know, they don't move very much and the speciation occurs. And, and uh, some many land snails only have ranges that are less than a mile uh, long and uh, that's that's an amazing thing to to uh, try to understand. 
And that and, may have been the case for thousands upon thousands of years. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, of course, if if humans come along and, and slash and burn um, their agricultural techniques, you could potentially be wiping out hundreds of species that we don't even know exist yet. Right, right. Mr. Alfenberg, great to talk to you. Thanks very much for uh, reminiscing about those experiences. Well, thank you for having me. Kurt Alfenberg and his late father co-authored the introduction to the 2002 book, Komodo Dragons, Biology and Conservation. One of the authors of the book is Claudio Chiaffi, who did the 1999 Scientific American article. In the intro, the Alfenbergs talk about the history of Komodo research. They also discuss one Komodo that they thought they were tracking until they realized that the situation might have been the other way around. That's Komodo Dragons, Biology and Conservation, and the Chiaffi article on Komodos is available in our digital archive, www.siamdigital.com Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, longevity gene also keeps the brain sharp. Story two, surgeons are taller than physicians. Story three, Mexico City sewer scuba divers unclog giant pipes manually for $40 an hour. And story four, Komodos can have virgin births. Time's up. Story one is true. A new study out of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine found that a gene associated with extreme longevity also appears to keep the brain sharp. The gene codes for a protein that increases levels of good cholesterol and keeps cholesterol particle size small. So the common thread in longevity and mental function may be unimpeded blood flow. Story four is true. Komodo eggs at a British zoo will hatch any time now as a result of parthenogenesis. The new Komodos will carry only genetic material from the mother. The funny thing about this story is that the wow factor is what the media concentrated on for the most part. You probably heard about this story. But the original paper in the current issue of Nature discusses the fact that the situation may be detrimental to the future populations of Komodos in captivity because of the loss of genetic diversity. The authors suggest that female Komodos be exposed to males to keep parthenogenesis from occurring. One of the authors of the new Nature paper is the previously mentioned Claudio Chiaffi. And story two is true. A study in the current issue of the British Medical Journal compared physicians and surgeons and found that surgeons are on average taller. They're also better looking. However, actors who play doctors were better looking than real surgeons or real physicians. All of which means that story three about making 40 bucks an hour scuba-ing in Mexican sewers is totally bogus. Because scuba sewer divers get $400 a month to wander around unclogging debris lodged in 20-foot-wide pipes in Mexico City. You can read more at our website in a news story titled, Mexican Sewage Divers Submerge in Murky World. Coincidentally, I know some people in the sewer line inspection business in Vermont where the divers get $400 an hour. And this one guy was about to dive in full scuba gear when he tripped over himself, broke a tooth, and gave himself two black eyes where his goggles smashed into his face. Who'd have thunk it would be less dangerous in the actual sewer? Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Scientific American Podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com. Check out news articles at our website, www.siam.com, and the daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Happy New Year. Thanks for clicking on us.